Well, good morning. And welcome to those joining us online this morning. It's great to see more people back together. It's awesome to be together to worship. And I look forward to today, not too far away, where we're all back together in one assembly with unveiled faces, <laughs> worshiping the Lord. Yeah, the day is coming. Well, we just sang the song, Living Hope, by Phil Wickham. And the chorus of that song said, Hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Now, in the time it took us to sing that song, about five and a half minutes, almost 600 people died on the planet Earth. That averages out to 6,313 people per hour or 151,500 people per day, or 55,300,000 people per year die on planet Earth. And then on top of that, if you just take the United States, there's some people who are alive but don't see any purpose in living. Studies show that every single year, 4.8% of adults in America, age 18 and over, seriously consider suicide. That's five times the death rate. So you got people dying. You have people wishing they were dead. And it's against this backdrop that we're starting a new series this morning, and it's called Living Hope. Living Hope. We need some living hope. And we're going to be studying the books of First and Second Peter, and we're going to see how we can live this life with great hope. I, I mapped it out, and I think we'll be about 15 weeks in both of these books. It'll take us through the summer, and um, whether you are, are a Christian who is living with that hope, or a Christian who maybe doesn't realize the hope that is there for you, or maybe you're outside the faith and you need that living hope. Whatever your situation, I think God has a lot to say to us in these chapters of his word. So, kicking it off this morning, we're going to be in chapter one. The message title is a cheery one, guaranteed grief and glory. And we're going to cover chapter one, verses one through seven. Three parts to the outline, the initial greeting in verses one and two, the future glory in three through five. And then, sadly, it doesn't stop there, the present grief in verses 6 through 7. So this text is only seven verses long, so let's start out by reading through it together. I'll be reading from the uh, NIV 1984 version. It begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, 
who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is God's word. And we want to begin working our way through it. Let's start with the initial greeting that we find in verses 1 and 2. Peter starts this letter with his credentials. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He simply says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's not using a lot of words, but it really says a lot. But I want to back up a little bit. Because before he was an apostle, he was a disciple. And a disciple is, that word means a learner. He was one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In fact, he was one of his closest three within that group. And he and the others learned directly from Jesus during his three years of ministry on earth. Now, when we talk about hope, it can begin right here by considering these 12 disciples who became some of the apostles. Not one of them was a scholar or a rabbi. They didn't know anything about ministry. They were ordinary people, just like you and me. And Peter, whose name was Simon before the Lord gave him the new name Peter, Peter and his brother Andrew, they were simple fishermen. They didn't know ministry. They knew fish. That's about all they knew. Yet, God would do an incredible work through them. And I think that of all the disciples, Peter is probably the one that most people can most readily identify with. He was, you could think of him as the duh disciple. <laughs> I mean, he had a lot of duh moments because he, he was just this impulsive and emotional guy. He was like a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. And we see that repeatedly. Some of the highlights that came from him would include jumping out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus. But then he took his eyes off the Lord and panicked and he sunk. He, he was the only disciple to even think about rebuking the Lord. When Jesus told of his imminent crucifixion, it was Peter who took him aside and said, come here, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Not so, Lord. He rebuked the Lord. And Jesus had to say to this disciple, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Jesus had to rebuke him. It was Peter who was in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers came and he whips out his sword and he goes for the guy's head, but he misses and he lops off his ear. And then probably his most famous incident was on the night of the trial of Jesus. Three times he, he denied the Lord. And yet, despite all that, he was the one who was, he, rebuked, he was rebuked more than any other disciple, but he was also affirmed by the Lord more than any other disciple. And God restored him and used him in a marvelous way. So Peter began as a learner, a disciple. And then after the resurrection, Jesus commissioned him and 11 other disciples as apostles. 
Now, either Matthias or Paul is considered the replacement for Judas who fell away. And so an apostle is different than a disciple. The word apostle means one who is sent. And by sent now, it isn't in the sense of a missionary necessarily. There were certain qualifications for these apostles, and there were only 12 apostles. I listed the qualifications here for you and some references. They had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ. They had to be called by the Holy Spirit. And they also had to have the ability to perform signs and wonders. Scripture says this is what qualified these 12 unique men. Others have been sent, but they are not apostles. There were 12 apostles, and they became the foundation of the church, which Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, as we just sang about. So the apostles were very unique. Peter was one of them. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he continues, to God's elect. Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, the NIV punctuates this in an unusual way, and I think it makes the, the understanding of it a little confusing. It says, to God's elect, comma, strangers in the world. And the comma kind of separates the idea of elect and strangers, but it really shouldn't. I believe they go together to the elect strangers in the world. And the, and the ESV has, I think, a, a better rendering. It says, to those who are elect exiles. And so these are like chosen exiles. And, and I believe that this verse, the confusion over it, can even fuel some of the debate over soteriology, the predestination versus free will. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But you might just scratch out the comma there. To God's elect strangers in the world is what that says. And it says these believers are scattered throughout these regions. These are regions within the Roman Empire. Now, what scattered them there? What are they doing all scattered over the... And by scattered, it means they weren't scattered at first. They were together, and now they're scattered. Well, it was persecution that scattered them. It began in Jerusalem with the Jews. They tried to stamp out Christianity. But all it did was fuel its growth and its spread. Because it was almost like trying to stamp out a campfire. And the sparks are flying out the side and just igniting new fires and it's spreading. That's what happened when they tried to smother the gospel there in Jerusalem. And so that drove the early Christians out of Jerusalem and into Judea, Samaria, and beyond. And so... This first letter of Peter, then, is written at about 64 AD. And something very significant happened in, this, in Rome around 64 AD. Uh, Nero was the emperor of Rome at that time. And you're probably familiar with the Great Fire of Chicago in 1871. Well, there was also a Great Fire of Rome in the year 64 AD, right around when this letter was written. And it burned for a total of nine days. It burned six days, and he thought it was out. And then it flared up for three more days. It destroyed two-thirds of the city. And it devastated the Roman culture. And most of the Romans believe that Emperor Nero himself said it. Some say he was clearing a place to build a new palace. He loved building, and he had to get rid of some stuff before he could build more, but it kind of got out of control. That's what the Romans believed. But Nero turned around, and he blamed it on the Christians. He made them the scapegoat. 
Now, the Christians were already hated because they were thought to be associated with the Jews, and also they didn't sign on to the Roman culture of these pagan gods and worshiping idols. And so there's already tension there, and Nero fueled it, and he launched what was the very first great government persecution against the church. It was government-sponsored persecution led by Nero himself. And so, tens of thousands of Christians were killed by the Romans. And Nero had all of these brutal ways of martyring these Christians. He'd stitch them inside of animal skins and then turn loose other wild beasts to rip them apart. He would clothe them in wax coated garments and put them on poles and use them as human torches to light his parties in the evening. He was a brutal, brutal murderer. And so underneath the city of Rome, there are 600 miles of tunnels and catacombs. There's a soft volcanic rock and they tunneled through that and they built these catacombs, these tombs, where it's estimated there are 6.5 million people buried just under Rome. And many of them are thought to be some of the first martyrs of the church under the persecution of Nero. This is the environment into which Peter writes this letter of encouragement to the church. Now, why all this persecution? Jesus said in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. He said, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. That's a promise. How many of you cling to that promise of God? They'll persecute me too because they persecuted the Lord. It's estimated that from the time of Jesus until now, more than 70 million Christians have been killed for their faith, martyred. 70 million. Why? Well, because there's a spiritual battle going on. You see, Christianity contradicts and challenges the world's ideals. It's like this clash of light and darkness. And great fireworks where those two meet. This is a persecution of the church. So, again, we've had a pretty tough year and a half here in the United States, but it's nothing like what these Christians were enduring in the Roman Empire when, when Peter wrote this letter. So he says to them in verse 2, you who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Now I want to point out two key words in this verse. If you're a note taker, you write in your Bible, underline these two words. It's sanctifying and obedience. And what this verse is saying is that God knew beforehand, it was according to his foreknowledge, he knew beforehand that he would place his spirit in all of those who believe. And the work of the spirit would be to sanctify the believers, that means to change them from their old sinful ways to be more and more like Christ, to sanctify the believers, which results in the second part, obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what this verse is saying. And so Romans 8.29 says a very similar thing. It says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, when 
people read the word predestined, they can get kind of hung up on the who. Was I predestined or did I have a choice? Were you predestined? Do people have a choice or does God predestine them to not believe? All of these questions, but get over the who for a minute. This verse is talking about the what. The what which God predestined. God predestined or determined beforehand that those who believe will be conformed to the likeness of his son. That's the sanctification we're talking about. He determined beforehand, he put his spirit in them, and he gradually changed them from their old self into the likeness of Christ. That's God's goal for his children. Now, to make sure, again, that this would happen, God put his spirit in the believers for this very purpose. It's not the only purpose, but it's two primary purposes, sanctification and obedience to Jesus Christ. So, if somebody claims to be a Christian, but there's no sanctification or obedience to Jesus Christ, it really casts doubts upon their claims because this is one of the primary works of the Spirit in a believer's life. So, it continues. He's speaking to these um, believers. Verse 2 continues. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Now, grace and peace, they've been called the, the Siamese twins of the New Testament. They're like joined at the hip. You always see them together, grace and peace. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, wrote 13 of his letters with the same greeting, grace and peace. And John, in the letters to the churches in Revelation, same greeting, grace and peace. And here, Peter uses it in both of his letters, grace and peace. Now, in the Word of God... And in life, you'll always see grace coming first. You'll never see peace and grace. It's always grace and peace. And the reason is, you'll never have the peace of God until you've received the grace of God. Grace is that free gift of salvation through faith. And the result is forgiveness and reconciliation to our holy God. And once we're reconciled, the avenue is opened up for God's peace to flow into our lives. So it's always grace first and then peace. But notice he doesn't just say grace and peace. He says grace and peace be yours in abundance. Overflowing. I think the ESV says may grace and peace be multiplied unto you. The grace we receive when we're saved is awesome. But it doesn't stop there. It's just the beginning. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's God's abundant grace and peace. And then notice the end of that verse. It says, and sprinkling by his blood. Now, this is reflecting back to when Moses made the sacrifice, poured half of it on the altar, and then the other half he sprinkled on the people. It was a sign that they were sealed by the covenant that God had made with them. They were identified with that covenant. And here it's using this language symbolically to say believers also are sprinkled by the blood, not of a bull, but of Jesus Christ. And that seals them according to the new covenant. It's almost like a peace treaty that's signed in blood. His blood is sprinkled upon us. And the work of sealing, 
of preserving a believer until that final day, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We're sealed by the Spirit of God. So here, that's what this, that's what this means, the sprinkling by his blood. And so, grace and peace, Christians, are you in abundance? Are you living a life of abundant grace and peace? Does that characterize you? See, Jesus went to all this, the cross, so that you could have abundant grace and peace. It's a free gift. It's grace. But do you have it? If you don't, don't put him off. Receive that gift. So this is his initial greeting. And let's look secondly at the future glory, which is in verses 3 and 5. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who to faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now here, there's three things I want you to notice. Every Christian should be elated, ecstatic over these three things. Number one, new birth. You might just underline that. Number two, a living hope. And number three, a lasting inheritance. Let's look at, let's look at each of those. First, it says that God has given believers a new birth. That's in verse 3. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. Or the ESV says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, Jesus said in John chapter 3, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he has been born again. Now, if you've been around Christian circles, part of the church for any length of time, you're probably familiar with that term, born again. But what if you weren't? What if you heard that for the first time? Born again? What are you, crazy? How does that even work? That's nuts. Well, this is exactly what a religious leader named Nicodemus said to, back to Jesus in, in John 3, 4. He said, how can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus said, surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? See, he was confused. He couldn't piece together the physics of this whole thing. How is that even possible? That's crazy on its face. Well, I heard about a, a lady named Heidi who was expecting her second child, and she was home with her three-year-old daughter, Caitlin. And this particular night, there was a power failure, and it was the night that Heidi went into labor. She knew this baby was coming soon, and she knew she couldn't get herself to the hospital, so she called 911. Now, because of the blackout, they could only dispatch one paramedic. So the paramedic gets there. It's totally dark in the house, and so he asked little Caitlin to hold the flashlight up high over mommy so that he could see to help deliver the baby. Well, after a bit of pushing, here comes baby Connor, and the paramedic takes and turns him upside down, spanks him on the bottom, he begins to cry, and here's this beautiful, healthy boy. Well, the paramedic looks at little three-year-old Caitlin, who's got eyes about this big, <laughs> and he says, thank you for helping me. What do you think about this whole experience? And she says real quickly, she says, well, I'm just glad you spanked him, because he shouldn't have climbed in there in the first place. 
she kind of had, she was piecing it together. Well, this is what Nicodemus is saying. He's like, Lord, how can a person enter a mother's womb a second time? It doesn't make sense. So Jesus answered Nicodemus. He told him in John 3, 5, he says, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. See, this second birth Jesus was talking about was a different kind of birth. It was a spiritual birth. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, the change that happens on the inside, when God puts his spirit in them, is so radical and so complete that the only way you can even describe it is a brand new birth. It's like starting all over again. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And so the Spirit of God comes in and takes up residence, and he begins this process we talked about of sanctification. And so some of the results of that, new perspectives on everything, on life, on the Word of God, new motives, new desires. More importantly, a new master, the Lord Jesus himself. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. New birth. So verse 3 said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. That's something to be excited about. But it continues, he says, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the second thing, a living hope. It's the hope of eternal life. Living Hope is the title of our series, as I mentioned. And while this hope is a future hope in the life to come, it's also a present hope right now in this life. And I tried to illustrate that through the graphic for this series. That house doesn't have a regular rectangular door. It's got a stone that's been rolled away. Kind of funky looking house with the stone rolled away, but the idea is that if your faith is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then your home is a totally different place. See, your life has purpose and meaning now. You're a child of God. Your marriage has new meaning. It points to Jesus Christ. Even your work has new purpose and meaning because you're working for the glory of the Lord. And this world isn't your home. You're a stranger, as it said an alien, a temporary resident. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so it's very different when your faith is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Believers have a living hope, a hope that is now in this life and a hope in what is yet to come, eternal life. Some people are trying to, they're trying their best to kind of create their own living hope. Some turn to things like cryogenics through science, and the idea is that they'll freeze the human body until some future time when science will hopefully be able to resuscitate it and cure all of its ails. Really? I I think that all you're going to end up with is an ugly old body with a bad freezer burn. (laughs) And then it does nothing to deal with the issue of sin and separation from God. That's not a living hope, that's a dead hope. But that's what some people are striving for. 
if, if, if I've got eternal hope, I'm ready to leave when it's my time. Don't freeze me. Don't keep me around here. I want to go home. So believers have a true living hope. And the word, when you see hope in the Bible, it doesn't mean wishful thinking. Biblical hope is not like, oh, I hope the weather's nice tomorrow, or I hope I get a raise this year, or I hope my team wins the World Series. That's wishful thinking. That's not biblical hope. The word that's used in the Bible for biblical hope means, it means confident expectation. Confident expectation. It means we're waiting for something that is certain to happen. It's just a matter of time. So we wait in confident expectation. We don't wish it happens. We know it's going to happen. It's just a matter of waiting until it gets here. That's biblical hope. Now you might ask, well, Paul, how can you be so certain that this will happen? Verse 3 tells you, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And I've never been more certain of anything in my whole life. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that it'll happen. Remember, that was our message over Easter. The things that God proves to us because through the resurrection. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. And, he's, and 2 Corinthians 4 says, we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. But again, this hope is not for everybody. Only those who believe and have been born again have this eternal hope. So he's given us new birth. He's given us eternal or living hope. And thirdly, he's given believers a lasting inheritance. Look at what verse 4 says. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. The whole idea of, of inheritance is a really interesting concept. The only way you receive an inheritance is when someone dies. Somebody did die. Jesus Christ died. And as a result, we have a rich inheritance in the saints. Now, one of the things that, um, well, about this inheritance, the Bible says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, this inheritance is so amazing, we can't even imagine it. We don't have the mental capacity to imagine this incredible inheritance that is ours. And it's a lasting inheritance. It says it can never perish, spoil, or fade. It can't wear out. It can never rest away. One of the consequences of when sin entered the world is something we call entropy, the second law of thermodynamics. It says that everything is going from a higher level of, an order, of order to a lower level of order. It's breaking down. It doesn't go the other way. And so the second law of thermodynamics states that apart from any outside energy or effort, things tend to go from a higher level of order to a lower level of order. They break down, they age, they decay, they wear out, they rust out, they become less organized. You want to see entropy at work? Stop cleaning and maintaining your house for just a little while. Just do a little experiment at home. Is it going to get better? No. Is it going to stay the same? No. It's going to fall apart. 
I drove by a house on Bolcom coming down here this morning, and I don't know, that so people must have moved out. It's only been a short while, and weeds are growing up all over this thing. It's a wreck. That's entropy. But Jesus says our inheritance is not subject to entropy. It's not. It'll never perish or spoil or fade. See, earthly treasures are the ultimate bad investment. You want to make a bad investment? Invest in earthly treasures. Because not only do they wear out, but you can't hold on to them. You can't keep them. Take a look at this sign outside a, uh, outside a resale shop. Dead people stuff, now on sale. Everything you own in this world will one day either be sold or given away or thrown away. Think about that. Your favorite everything will either be sold or given away or thrown away. You can't take it with you. You know the saying, you don't see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You can't take it with you. It's gone. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But, he says, I still want you to store up treasure. He said, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. In other words, live in the hope of heaven where your inheritance is lasting. It can never fade away. And the other thing about this inheritance, it says there, it's kept in heaven for you. It's there right now. See, heaven is the future home of those who are born again, Jesus said. He said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you are... I got that all crossed up. I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Your future home is in heaven. I heard about a new business that was opening and the owner's friends decided to send him some flowers. And so he contacted the florist and he sent some flowers. But when the owner of this new business location got the flowers and opened up the envelope, it said, rest in peace. <laughs> and he's like, what? And so he called the florist and told him. And the florist said, well, rather than getting all upset at me, sir, he said, just consider this, that somewhere there's a funeral taking place today. And they have a card with the note, congratulations on your new location. <laughs> Jackpot. That's what I want at my funeral. <laughs> congratulations on your new location. See, Heaven is the future home of those who are born again. And their inheritance is kept secure there. God is watching over it. He guarantees it. And not only is he watching over a believer's inheritance, he's watching over the believers themselves. Look at verse 5. It says, who, speaking of these believers, who to faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You can't get a better shield than shielded by the power of an all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God. He's not only watching over your inheritance, he's watching over you 
believers. He says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. Listen, listen to this verse, familiar verse, in the context of what we've been saying. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Your stuff is secure. Your inheritance, your treasure in heaven is secure. And you as a believer are secure. You're shielded by the power of an all-powerful God. And this is a guarantee. It's the future glory of every believer. And it's glorious beyond anything we can imagine. I wish it stopped there. <laughs> and we just moved on. But there's a third part to this text. And it's the present grief. In verses 6 through 7. Peter writes, In this you greatly rejoice. Yeah, of course, who wouldn't? This is awesome stuff. But then here comes the rub. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Oh, man. What kind of living hope is that? Grief in all kinds of trials. Why do we have to go through that? Doesn't God love us? Doesn't he care? Can't he put an end to this? Isn't he powerful enough to stop it? Isn't there a better way than grief in all kinds of trials? See, these are the kind of questions that go through our mind when we're facing trials, don't they? I often ask those questions. Well, look at verse 7. It says, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, these trials that God allows to come to us have a purpose, and that is to refine our faith. Just like fire refines gold, and as valuable as gold is, it too will perish. But fire, the fire of trials, refines our faith, and it will never perish. It's a living hope, as we said. Nor will your inheritance perish. It's kept in heaven for you. See, these trials have a clear purpose. You know this passage well, and, and Dave referred to it this morning in the Lord's Supper, James chapter 1. It reads, this is a hard one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You want your faith to be mature and complete? I do. God says, okay, here's how it works. Trials. Think about some of the best times in your life. Times when you saw God working in, in beautiful ways and like everything just seemed to fall into place. You saw the hand of God. Maybe it was in the way you came to meet your spouse and go on to marry your spouse. Maybe it was in a, a really unique job opportunity that you had. You've had experiences like that, right? Maybe even just in the last year where you just see God at work and it all falls into place. How many of you have experienced that? A lot of people, me too, even, even recently. And when we experience that, a lot of people will say, it was a God thing. 
And I think that's cool because it's acknowledging God's hand. It's thankfulness and it's praise and worship. I see your hand in this, God, and that's a good thing. But now I want you to think about the trials in your life. And I know a lot of you have gone through some hard stuff. And some of you are going through some hard stuff right now. Health challenges, the loss of a spouse or loved one, employment difficulties, relational struggles, marital struggles. You're going through this stuff right now. Think about probably one of the most current or, or hardest trial that you've been through. Put that right in the center of your mind as you consider this. Have you ever thought that God puts just as much care into coordinating that trial as he does those good things in your life? What? I mean, that sounds crazy, right? Do you ever see them as a sign of his love? Have you ever said, that trial, that was a God thing. (laughs) We probably don't think like that, do we? But we should. Now, I'm not saying that God causes evil. But God works it all together for good. All of it. He's in, at work in the midst of your trials. He hand selects them. You could think of them like designer trials. This is a trial. God said, my child, I know exactly what you need. It's not another great thing. You need a trial to grow and mature your faith. And I've got just the one. Handpicked by God. That's a tough thought, but it's a reality that God uses these things to grow my faith and your faith, to grow me spiritually. Not just through the good things, but through the trials of life. These trials aren't a mistake. They're not an unintended consequence. They are a product of the fall, but God uses them for a good, as I said. They're purposeful. And so, he works all of that together And look at the the result again in verse 7. So that your faith may be proved genuine. And your faith may result in praise and glory and honor when Christ Jesus is revealed. These early verses of 1 Peter, verses 3 through 7, establish a paradigm that you're going to see throughout this book and throughout your life. And the paradigm is this. Believers have and a, a future glory that is almost, it's so good it's unimaginable. But at the same time, they experience present griefs. Future glory, present griefs. They go hand in hand. Listen to how the Apostle Paul wrote about this dynamic. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he said, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Your biggest trials probably don't feel light and momentary, do they? They probably feel bone-crushing and never-ending. And yet, God says, from my perspective, in light of this unimaginable glory, they're light and they're momentary. We need to look at them differently. Consider this. The same dynamic of present trial and future glory was experienced by Jesus himself. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus, for the joy, the glory set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. 
and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That joy, that glory that was set before him was in part the salvation of your souls. It was your reconciliation to the heavenly father. It was the affirmation of the father on the son that he was obedient. And God glorified him. That was the future glory. But he had to go through the present trials. He had to go through the cross to get there. So how did he do it? I think he kept his eyes on the future glory. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. In this same passage, 2 Corinthians 4, he said in verse 17, For our light and momentary trials are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. Then, the very next verse, 18, he says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Think about when you've been looking forward to something really awesome that you're going to experience. Maybe, let's just say, and I shouldn't use the word awesome glibly, but something really wonderful that you're looking forward to. Like maybe a great vacation. And you can't stop thinking about it. You're running, it's running through your mind, all the scenarios of what you're going to do and what you're going to see. And you're just constantly thinking about it. You're making all the plans for travel. Maybe you're getting your passport renewed. You're buying some new clothes, maybe some gear that you're going to take with you on this vacation. And you, you just maybe even keep like a picture or a poster of this destination on the wall in your office or on your desktop. And you're looking at it and you're going, oh, but it's not yet. It's still weeks away. Now, maybe while you're waiting, I hate waiting, but I will never book a vacation eight months in advance again, ever. I don't like waiting that long. I did that once years ago, never again. I don't like waiting. But you're waiting, and while you're waiting, you go through some pretty tough stuff. Maybe there's some conflict in the family or in the workplace, or there's some other trials that come your way, and they're hard, and they're hurtful, but you think, yeah, but in a month, I'm going to be there. This will be behind me. You're looking forward to that vacation. It like lifts your spirits. Does, is it just me? Or <laughs> have you felt this? We keep our eyes on that that lies ahead. And it's an encouragement to us. Well, this is what this passage is saying. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. The future glory. How much time do you spend thinking about heaven? About this future glory for the follower of Jesus. See, life is hard because we live in a broken, fallen world. And we face all kinds of painful trials. Even though God uses them for our good, they're difficult. But when those trials begin to discourage you, you need to take your eyes off the things of this world and Put your eyes on the things that are to come. You need to have a living hope. There are some nights where I lay down and I just got all these concerns running through my mind. And I, and I just can't sleep. I'm thinking about how should we counsel this marriage situation? How are we going to fill that deacon role and when? Where can we get more leaders for the Sunday school? 
What will I teach for our next series? What are we going to do about that Brad Skull? He's got so many issues. <laughs> no, not the last one. But all these things are running around and around in my mind. And I just can't sleep. It borders, it goes from concern to worry and anxiety, a sinful anxiety. I started doing something different, and it's really helped me. First of all, I pray about those things. And then I do this. I start thinking about heaven. What will heaven be like? What will I see on the day I arrive there? What will it be like when I first see the Lord? Like that song, I can only imagine. What will I say to him? How nice will it be to have all this other stuff behind me? To be incorruptible. And I start thinking about that. I start fixing my eyes on the future glory. And you know what? This sense of peace just falls over me. And in short order, I fall asleep with a smile on my face. This is what it's saying. Jesus kept his eyes on the, for the glory set before him. Our future glory is so magnificent. But we have to get through these current trials, these, this grief. And that's one of the ways we do it. So, here's my shortest wrap-up ever. Short and sweet. In this life, you'll have grief in all kinds of trials. It's a promise. How many of you cling to that promise of God? <laughs> you know, this is my promise. You will have grief in all kinds of trials. But we have an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And it's guaranteed. So as we work through this book, over the next several weeks, the next many weeks, let's learn how to live in this life with hope, living hope. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, long before Jesus came to this earth, you said in your word, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Through this life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you've given us an eternal hope, a living hope, a glory that goes beyond anything we can imagine. And God, we thank you for it. But Lord, at the same time, we face trials. Help us to know that these are vetted by you, God, and that you're using these for a purpose. God, help us to keep our eyes and our affections fixed not on the things of this world, but on the things above, the things that are eternal as we wait for the future glory. God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.